You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Dispel Mauritius. I'm not sure if it's got a T, a C. M-A-ish, Mauritius. Um, they look like a beautiful place with beautiful people. Um, I, was, I think I've told you before, we were in Africa and those people thought we were so ugly because we were white. And um, I just thought, I always thought that was funny. You know, we have our measure of what beauty is. The Koreans think that the Korean people are the highest level of beauty and handsomeness. And in the Chinese, my daughter went to school with a lot of Chinese girls and they were like, oh, the Koreans are ugly. The Chinese, those are the beautiful people. And in me, a gringo, I'm like, you guys look the same. You look about the same. So you say what you will, but uh, you look about the same. Anyhow, it's kind of interesting how man measures one another. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart, right? Exodus 34, we're going, we're not going to go back to Exodus 34. We're going to, I'm going to write it down because I got in, uh, I had a great word from a, a man who told me he fell off a 50 foot ladder and lived, but he said he fell off just the bottom rung. So, uh, that was a Lynn Davis line right there. Let me write these down for you right quick. Second Samuel, uh, he said this helps. So I'm going to write them down. I'm sorry I didn't get it done before church. Six, uh, verse 1 through 10. We're going to do uh, First Samuel uh, 6, uh, 13 through 19. Those will be the key ones. And then, um, and then Numbers chapter 4. That's a side one. 4, verse 24. Um, uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, I'm sorry, 4, 11. I'm sorry, I got Ruth wrong there. 11. There you go. So if you, that helps you to put your finger on those things because you're not a fast looker-upperer. You can, you can work on those real quick and do what I do. In the mornings when I'm studying a lot of times, it's kind of ridiculous. I got a pen in one and then a note card and then uh, something else, you know, a toothpick. I'm trying to sort all the ones that I'm going to read from that week so it, Anyway, whatever you got to do there. I'm just trying to, trying to get you ready there. But I do think it's important for us to look, continue to look on these scriptures here that we have on God being a jealous God. We sang a song there, He's Jealous for Me. And it's a, and it's a truth, and, um, and but there's, there's danger in this truth. There's danger in the fact that God is a jealous God. He's jealous, like a jealous husband for his wife. A jealous husband for his wife will commit a crime of passion, we talked about last week. Um, because when you touch his wife, you touch himself. You touch him. And it's the same thing with God. He has a right to be jealous. He, has a, he, ha, he is a righteous and a just God. He has every right to be just, I'm uh, sorry, every right to be jealous for us. He made us. He created us. He has a design for us. He tells us to follow him. He has a right to tell us what to do. He has a right to care for his creation. Uh, he has a right to judge men for misusing his creation, either misusing one another, uh, misusing his creation, or, or, uh, or just being immoral in general. Um, man in his fallenness, they kind of look at God's jealousy. I've, I've saw this, I saw this as a, uh, another guy. He thinks it's real funny to see me these like Jesus jokes, which I tell you, be very careful before applying Jesus, God's name, either one to some little humorous quip. You think, you think well, you just throw Jesus' name in there and you get a little laugh out of it. That's a cheap laugh. Be careful. Um, we're not to blaspheme the name of God. It's punishable by death. Um, 
let's, let's be careful with that. But he had a, a meme, and it had Jesus on there, and this guy was writing like Jesus. He comes to save men that God created, put all these rules on to destroy, and then has, you know, and he makes it like this joke, like God specifically made men so that they would have to follow all these rules so that he could punish them mercilessly in hell, and if you accept Jesus, maybe you got an out. And he's like, isn't that funny? I'm like, well, it's not that funny. Uh, because it's not true, number one. It's a distortion of who God is, and it's a distortion of his righteousness. And so men look at God, fallen men, but don't kid yourself. Believers think this way too. You just don't know you think this way. But they look at God, and they think, does God really have the right to intimidate me just because he created me? Does he really have the right to tell me what to do, what to say? Don't I have... Uh, all freedom in Christ. In Christ, if he made me free, I'm free indeed. Then he cleansed me from all unrighteousness, and so therefore I can just pray and be, you know, uh, confess my sin, and he's faithful and just, forgive me my sin, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Aren't I free to live how I want to live? Isn't assigning God, or isn't even mentioning the law, say, isn't that like trying to put yourself back under the law and not having freedom in Christ? And so we use those things so that we can live however we want to live and do whatever we want to do and act however we want to act because we say, well, I have freedom in Christ to act this way or I have freedom in Christ to do these things. The Jewish people did the same thing. They took parts of the law that they felt was most important and they followed that part or didn't. And then they'd get to that Day of Atonement thing, which is coming up here in September, October, time, time frame every year, the Day of Atonement, and they would... They would go there and they're just like, well, I'll just, I'll just bring a better goat this year to kill and then God will let me go for another year. I'll be good to go. And before long, they didn't even bring, they were bringing like three-legged goats and one-eyed goats and one-eyed sheep. They weren't even bringing good goats. They're like, well, I was going to throw this goat away anyway. I was going to give it to my neighbor because he's poor and I was going to help him out. I was going to give him my one-eyed goat. And instead of bringing the very best, they brought the very average or the very least. And God, he should forgive us. He created us. He loves us, right? He should do... I mean, he's basically Santa Claus. We just ask him for what we want, and then he gives us what we want, and then we're happy, and he's happy. And we have the wrong view of God. And believers have not considered these questions well either. And like I said, they fall back on that, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Yeah, things of Christ. You can do all things of Christ that are things of Christ who strengtheneth me. It doesn't mean uh, you can go lift the car off the, the, the kid in the parking lot unless Christ strengthens you, and then if your spirit is right, I mean, there's, there's some, what's the word, parameters. There's some things going on there. You've got, you got to have the life that is in Christ. If you're living a life that's outside of Christ, don't expect the hand of Christ on your life. It's a, I mean, it's a poor expectation of the way God works. And um, anyway, and, and it's, it's, we're lying. We're lying to ourselves. We're lying to other people. We've really weakened, not we, not you, you're super spiritual people, but other people, other Christians, other places have really weakened the power of the gospel because we've given this, this gospel that's a very uh, watered-down thing of you'll be saved from eternal fire if you say the magic prayer and then everything will be good. You don't have to change anything. You just... Live how you want to live, do what you want to do, worship when you want to worship, how you want to worship, where you want to worship. Just whatever suits your pleasure, whatever suits your fancy. And um, God's going to, he's just going to save you and keep you. And, um, and then that's just going to be that. And it's a false, it's a false teaching. You said, I have my own personal freedom. 
I have, I have this freedom in Christ. Because of grace I've been saved, through faith, not of works. So it's nothing I can do. So that means I don't even have to do anything. I just accept Christ, and I say the magic prayer, and then everything's cool from there, and I can just live, I can live like hell if I want to. Uh, but I, I, but I'm, I got my out-of-jail-free card. But uh, I mean, it's, just a, it's just a bad view. So many believers and unbelievers alike have no understanding of God's jealous nature or even the right to be jealous that he has. He has every right to be jealous. We're his, the sheep of his pasture, the people of his fold. We're, he's the potter. We're the clay. Think about those verses when you go do your, your, your thing, whatever it is you think that stretches the limits of God's grace and mercy in your life. Think about that. He's the maker He's the director. He's the guide. Um, God's jealousy is righteous and it's just. And let's start there in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. And what you'll see is you'll see godly men trying to do godly things in a mannish way. And you'll see that it riles the anger of God. 2 Samuel 6. So the Ark of the Covenant had been taken from Israel because of their continued wickedness, their refusal to cast all the Canaanites out of the land, their refusal to complete the task that was set before them, the worship of Baal, the bringing of the idols into the home, the living just like the neighbors live uh, lifestyle, and eventually in battle they lose the Ark of the Covenant. Philistines get it. Philistines maintain it for a time, and eventually because of God's power being on the Ark of the Covenant and the way God revealed himself through the Ark, um, it actually causes discord among the philistine brethren they can't raise their heads up for people dying and they know it's because of the ark so they move it town to town to town um in different places and every time they move it to a new town a bunch more people die of the philistines and finally they say well we'll give it back to them and we'll get to that part of the story but that's so it's not been in the tabernacle for between 20 and 40 years but at least 20 it's not been where it's supposed to be it's been in this man's barn abinadab it's been in his in, on his property Second, Second Samuel uh, chapter 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. David rose up and went with the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name Hashem, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they sent, set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, on fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it inside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. It was the jealousy of God, whether you believe this or not, doesn't make it less true. It was the jealousy of God that struck Uzzah dead for touching the ark in presumption. 
He sought to touch the holiness of God without permission from God to touch his holiness. The Ark of the Covenant had been storage all this time. David's heart to desire to have it in his presence so that he could counsel with the Ark. It's kind of interesting. Saul only sought to seek an answer from the Ark. Even when they got it back from the Philistines, he only sought to seek an answer from the Ark one time. And it looked like the battle was going their way, and it says he stayed his hand. He's like, hey, quick, run and go get the ark and bring it over here so we can counsel with the ark. Wait a minute, battle's going okay. Never mind. And then he goes to the battle. And that's exactly how it went. He never got it into his hands. He never got it into his presence. He had no interest in the ark being in his presence. David has a great desire for the ark to be in his presence. Amen. But... Um, the Philistines, like I said, they had willfully given it back because they, they didn't want nothing to do with it. In fact, they had put some gold idols into it, and it says that they gave it to the people of Beth Shemesh. That's in 1 Samuel 6, 13 through 19. If you want to read that, you can, but uh, just know that's where this story's at. The people of Beth Shemesh, it says they see the ark coming from a long way away. So the, so the Philistines put the ark, this is where the Jews got the idea, it's a great idea. They get some cows that have never been haltered. And they said, if this is of God, this ark's going to go where it's supposed to go. They put the ark on the cart, and they send the cows, separate them from their calves, and these cows just walk, and they show up in the town of, or the area of Beth Shemesh. And the people, it says, when they saw it afar off, they rejoice. They're super happy. The ark, we get it back. We don't have to fight for it. They're just going to give it to us. Amen. And they bring the ark, and in their joy and rejoicing and their foolishness, they take the ark from the cart and they open it. When they open the ark, 50,070 people die of Beth Shemesh. And instantly, the people of Beth Shemesh is like, you know what? Wasn't that great to have the ark? Who else wants the ark? And so they send it on, and that's how Abinadab gets it. Okay? They got casual with the sacred, they got casual with the holy, they got casual with the presence. And they looked inside the box, they looked inside the judgment of God, and it was revealed to them that they were not worthy. It says, uh, remember that in the book of Daniel, on the, you know, um, how's it go? Uh, the writing on the wall, what's the word? Uh, many, many, tekelu parson, right? And it says, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And they were found wanting when they looked in the judgment of God. They opened the box and they looked in and they were found wanting. 50,000 people gone. The jealousy of God for his holiness is key to our understanding of who God is. There's a, you say, well, that was Old Testament. God's immutable. God is who he is in the Old Testament. You'll see the same miracles in the Old Testament. Just look at Elisha. You'll see the same of uh, uh, miracles in the Old Testament as far as raising from the dead or healing or, you know, uh, making bread meet the needs of 100 people and so on. You'll see the same thing. Jesus does the same in the Old as God worked through man in the New. God raises people from the dead in the Old. He raises people in the New. God speaks, the men speak in tongues in the Old. Men speak in tongues in the New. God does miracles on earth in the Old. He does miracles. He does, he's not changed. The God of the Old Testament is a holy righteous and a jealous God and he's a just God and he'll give to man exactly what he's due 
So Beth Shemesh didn't see the possession of the ark as a blessing anymore. So they pawned it off on Abinadab. And it says of Abinadab that once it made it into his house and also of Obed, uh, what was this other guy's name? Obed uh, Edom, of Obed Edom and of, of Abinadab, their houses were blessed by the presence of God being there. So having the presence of God close is a good thing, right? And what happened, it seems, is that Uzzah here, he's either Abinadab's son, it says his son, but it could also have been his grandson. We're not exactly sure on the total number of years. At least 20, it says in one place. In um, 1 Chronicles 13, you can find that. But it says at least 20 years, but it could have been as much as 40 years. It's been a while. Uzzah's grown up. Uzzah, Uzzah. He's grown up with this ark, with the presence of God close. And it's made him casual in the presence of God. Casual with his presence. He felt comfortable around his presence. He felt comfortable to the point that he sees it on the ark and he's like, or he sees it on the cart and he tells David, or he's in, in his mind, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking for Uzzah here, I don't know, he's, he's wherever he is. I would say he's in heaven. I would assume that God disciplined him like he, he was. He, he acknowledged the presence of God being on the ark and these things. I don't know, but wherever he's at, at the time then, I would say he thought something to the effect of, I know more about this ark than any of these jokers with this cart and these cattle. I mean, I've been around it my whole life. I know God. I know his presence. And if I got to put my hand to, to just, you know, steady it, I mean, I know more about the ark than King David. He's writing all the Psalms, whatever, shooting, you know, uh, dinking goliath on the head and you know spearing people and stuff but i'm telling you when it comes to knowing god i know god his presence has been in my presence since a youth and he just gets casual and touches what he shouldn't touch and god strikes him dead if you re maybe you don't recall it's in numbers four but god gave very specific directions to anyone who would read numbers four who would read uh, the word, and the king was supposed to make a copy of the law, and so we can see that David had yet to do that, or he has forgotten, but there's very specific directions in how to handle the Ark of the Covenant. 4 verse 11 Numbers 4 verse 11 it says, over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of badger skins, and they shall insert its poles, and they shall take all the utensils of service which wish they minister in the sanctuary, put them in a blue cloth, cover them with covering of badger skins, put them on the carrying beam, and they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth. Skip on down to 15. It says, and when Aaron and his sons have finished, so Aaron and his sons, the Levitical priesthood, takes the ark inside the tabernacle before anybody sees it and they put the blue cloth over it and they put the badger skins over it and they put the poles through it. So the only thing you're seeing when it comes out is badger skin and poles. It's all supposed to be done in a particular way and all the furnishings of the sanctuary. When the camp is set to go, verse 15, then the sons of Kohath shall come and carry them but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. Pretty, pretty clear. If you touch the box, you die. Had David done what he'd said, once I provide you a king, the king is to write 
his own copy of the law. David hadn't written a copy of the law, and if he had, he's forgotten it. Because he would know that the only way you move this ark is you bring the Levitical priesthood, and then you bring some sons of Kohath. Doesn't say nothing about tambourines and trumpets and all that jazz that he said. It said you bring the Levitical priesthood and you bring the sons of Kohath and you cover the ark and you carry it with the poles. That's what it says. And David didn't do that. He brought some cows and put it on a cart and he had some trumpets and some dancing girls. He didn't have the covering. And so what it was was the ark was not protected from the foolish hand of a man who doesn't understand the law who doesn't understand who God is and how perfect and holy and righteous God is. And obviously Uzzah hadn't boned up on these words and numbers either. Or he'd have known better in his foolishness and his weakness and his pride to touch the ark of God. David was a man of God. He was a, he was a holy man of God. He was a prophet. He was a pastor, a shepherd of the people. He was a king. He was writing music. He was like the true, I mean, I've told you before, I mean, you want to talk about a well-rounded man? I mean, a lot of people that are poets, you know, aren't exactly ninjas. They're not, you know, you don't see Navy SEAL poets generally. You're either a Navy SEAL or you're a poet. You're either a Navy SEAL, you might play an instrument, an instrument of M16, I don't know. You're not playing, you're not, you're not, the, he, he's got both. You've got the soft-hearted side of the musician the, um, the whatever personality that is that musicians and poets and, and these kind of people have. And he's got the stone-cold killer side of king, ruler. Um, he's going to do what it takes to get done. And he's a builder. He's an architect. I mean, he's a well-rounded person. And that's unusual in a, a, a person. Usually we're pretty myopic. We're kind of a one-trick pony, you know. Were, were this and, and just a little bit of everything else. David was a lot of a lot. And he was a man in the image of God and a man after God's own heart, but he was still wrong. And when a man of God does wrong, God will discipline him just like he will a person that's not a man of God. And you need to remember that. The way he approached God was wrong. What's interesting is he didn't strike David. God didn't strike David for the sin of Uzzah. It was David who said, Let's put it on the cart. Let's get the cows. I mean, this is how it came here. We can just haul it the same way. He didn't strike David. In fact, he didn't strike David uh, over, uh, he struck him in taking his son. He struck him through his children, but he never struck David in the, the issue with Bathsheba. He never struck David in the taking of the census because he was a man after God's own heart. God knew his heart. God knew he was... David knew who he was, a sinner before God. Forgive me, O Lord. Have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. You know, Psalm 51, Psalm 38, Psalm 32. He knew he was wicked. He knew he was a fallen man, all the same. God never struck David, but he struck Uzzah. And it caused two different um, emotions in David. Uh, it causes him both anger, it says, and fear. In fact, he names the place Perez Uzzah, or outburst against Uzzah, it says in verse 8, uh, 2 Samuel, back to 2 Samuel 6, verse 8, David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, so he called the place outbreak against Uzzah. Perez Uzzah. And he struck him there. And it says David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And verse 9 says David was afraid of the Lord that day. Two different emotions. And what it was, 
was David wanted the presence of God. He said, how can I bring the ark of the Lord to me? How can I make it come to me? What do I want it for? Do I want it for me? Do I want it because I love the Lord? Do I want it for its power? Do I want it for its power so that I can defeat enemies in my life? Do I want it for its power so they can establish my throne for eternity? Do I want it for its power so I can have more wealth or more ability or write better psalms or whatever, play better harps? Or do I want it because I want it because I want the presence of God present in my life? It's a good question to, to ponder about you in your life. And you say you love God. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love him, why don't you keep his commandments? This new commandment I give unto you, love one another. Do you love one another? This new commandment I give unto you, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Do you do that? Care for the widow and the orphan. Do you do that? Do you do any of the things that he commands you to do? If you love me, then you'll act like you love me. And you'll live as, as a person who loves God. It'll be a different life than the person that calls on God to fix his every want, need, and sorrow. But there is never any response in return to this jealous God. His jealousy with David is rooted in his holiness, and he's not going to let David off the hook. No matter as much a man of God that he was, David wants his blessing. He wants his presence. He wants his ear. When I cry unto the Lord, he will hear me. He will answer me when I call. He wants those things. It didn't come to him in the way he thought it was going to come to him. In fact, it brought these emotions of anger and fear. I don't know if it's anger of the Lord, the shock and anger of this man dropping dead who touches. And what's interesting is there was no doubt in anybody's mind why Uzzah was dead. They weren't like, oh, maybe he had a heart attack. Oh, maybe he's got the flu. Maybe he's got COVID. Maybe whatever. He just died. He was touched the thing and he died. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they told the lie and they died. And there was no doubt amongst any of the people because they saw the sin and they knew it was wrong and they saw the death and they knew it came from God. And we need to look for, we need to look for divine discipline in that way and, and, and recognize when it is God's hand. I, I think we could see that in some things uh, that have happened to our country. But just back to the point. Here's the point. Um, this, is, this is really timely for us first world believers. It really is. Because we really do handle God's power, his authority. We handle it very lightly. We, we say that God is sovereign, has all authority, all power, all justice, all righteousness, all holiness, down the line of all his, all his attributes that are named in the Bible. You know, We say he has all these things, and yet we withdraw ourselves out from underneath his authority, out from underneath his sovereignty, out from underneath his goodness, his holiness, his mercy, and his grace, and we, and we live how we want to live, and we question well where's god if he has authority over you then you should act in such a way as one who's under authority the bible says of christ speaking not everyone who cries lord lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven it also says jesus speaking again you know we lord we healed these people in your name lord we did this and that we fed the hungry depart from me you doer of iniquity i never knew you they, people do things today in the name of Christ, in the name of God, assuming that they're saved, that they know God, and they have no real idea because they don't allow, I mean, they're not saved, and they have no place under his authority in their life. And, and they're wrong. And they're lost. 
And I think a lot of Christians need to evaluate themselves in this and see if this is not true. I want to live how I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. And I want God to bless it. Instead of God tells me to live like this, and he says, I will bless you. It's two different animals. Um, anyway, in his presence is only perfection. It can't be attained by men through actions, but it can be a blessing to men by being obedient to his commands. Um, the presence of God's perfection can only be attained by the righteousness of Christ being imputed on a man. And then truly, the Bible says, no man can see God and live. Even Moses said, I want to see your face. He's like, you can't, you can't handle my face. Elijah, show me your presence. You can't handle my presence. I'll tell you what, I'll tuck you in a rock, and then I'll pass by, and you can look at my back. That's the best we can do. Because if you look at my face, I don't care how righteous and how holy and how spiritual you think you are, how many times you read the psalm, how many times you sang, oh, how he loves us, it doesn't matter if you don't, if you're not, if you don't have Christ's imputed righteousness on you, it won't matter. If you see his face in this existence, in this flesh, you will die. Now, in eternity, you will live. To have Christ's righteousness on you gives you free access, 100% access to the holy realm, to the kingdom of God. But only because of his righteousness. The only righteousness that we possess, nothing good in me dwells. Go back to that one. And keep telling yourself that. Every time you goof up, well, nothing good in me dwells. Well, okay, another day, nothing good in me dwells. I mean, I, every day, you'll do better. And you'll be more reliant on God and his goodness towards you. You'll recognize that anything good comes from God. But anyway, we can go through the list of things, the neithers and nors that's in uh, Revelation chapter 21, either liars or fornicators, adulterers, and so on homosexuals and you know gossipers and this list shall enter the kingdom of heaven and then you can look at your spirit and say am i a liar am i an adulterer am i a, a drunkard that's on the list am i an adulterer in mind do i because does everything that walked by attract my eye because if it is uh, you better check it out you better make sure that you're under the blood of Christ because a person that's under the blood of Christ will actively battle against those things in his life. They won't let them run free in their spirit and just keep on, hey, baby. Hey, how are you? Come on in. Okay. We have, to, we have to regulate within ourselves. It's the quenching of the Holy Spirit. It's not allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin in our lives. We have to regulate these things in our life. We let these things run free in our spirit, and we say, well, God will forgive me. That's wrong thinking. So as, as God, and let me, let me point this one last thing out. In heaven, there won't even be inadvertent sins. What Uzzah did was maybe to an extent an inadvertent sin. So much of what we do, if uh, all of sin and falls short of the glory of God and God's glory is perfect, you know, and the word sin, you know, to miss the mark. So though we're aiming for the bullseye, we keep missing, we keep hitting to the side, whatever, every now and then we hit it. So basically, and I've told people this before, this is a, the, the easiest analogy I can make as a carpenter, but to put the nail in the place and hit the nail and strike it again and bend it is sin because you bent the nail. It wasn't perfect. 
about everything that we do every day is less than perfect. God is perfect, righteous, holy. About everything we do, about every fifth nail you're going to bend. Every other nail. It depends how many nails you hit. Fingernails. I'm really good at hitting nails. But in our, in, our, in our foolishness, we have these little inadvertent sins and they build up. And that's what's happened to the church. That's what's happened to our country. Little things that in the past um, didn't seem like that big a deal. It's coming to fruition now. The little sins. What happened with David was these little mistakes. There was no planning. There was no calling the Levitical priesthood. There was no getting the sons of Kohath together, whoever they were, and getting those guys organized. There was no getting the poles out. There was no finding the badger skins. Maybe they didn't even have the badger skins. You know, We don't know. Somebody go get us some badgers so we can skin them so we can cover the ark. Somebody get us some blue cloth. The tabernacle wasn't complete. We need the stuff to make it complete. We're going to have to get that stuff first, and then we'll go get the ark. David was already en route to the battle. I need the presence of God right now. But he made no plan for the presence of God beforehand and then was surprised when God struck Uzzah in that moment. No man can see God and live. God's jealous of his holiness. No doubt God's justice is tied to his holiness. So even someone very familiar with the Father like David, when he steps out of line or he tarnishes God's name, God is going to discipline him. Um... One thing about, so we, we, have, we have Old Testament Messiah in David, we have New Testament Messiah in Christ, the, the Messiah, capital M, David the picture, the shepherd in the Old Testament, lowercase m. Um, Jesus never disregards God's holiness, God's truth, God's direction, God's um, instruction, God's word, never. He never second-guesses it. He never tries to put it aside. He never, he never does any of those things. He's always exactly what God says, that's what we're going to do. Um, he was greatly offended when the Pharisees tried to uh, equate their holiness or their spirituality with God's holiness. That's when Jesus really goes off on them. That's when he tells them, you think you're holy? You're nothing but a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You're, you're worse than a, a, a grave. Look at this. It's in, it's in Numbers chapter 6. I'm sorry. That's not true. <laughs> that's not, yeah. I don't know where it's at. It's in the Bible. We'll find it here. Hang on. I think I wrote the wrong verse down there. Give me a second. Yeah, maybe it is. Yeah, chapter 6. I'm sorry. Your, your brain's going one direction. I'm telling you. It's like AM radio. Just got to dial in the channel there. Everything will be fine. Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 26. This is the high priestly prayer that is prayed often. Prayed anytime the Jews get together, anytime there's a feast, anytime there's an ordinance observed, every Shabbat. It should be prayed in the homes of the Jews during Shabbat, over the, every Sabbath, every Saturday. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God's desire... This care for his people is this right here. I want to bless you. I want to, my face to shine upon you. I want to give you peace. I want you to have fulfillment in this life as you live as kingdom people. However, I want you to keep my commands. 
You remember in Deuteronomy where he's got them standing on one mountain over here and he got them standing on another mountain over here. This is the mountains of blessing. This is the mountain of cursing. They read off a blessing and they read off a curse. And they read off a blessing and they read off a curse. And they read off a blessing and they read off a curse. The curse is for those that turn their back on a jealous God. They're always his people. And I don't really, truthfully for me, um, in a personal view, I didn't really understand this jealousy thing. Maybe, maybe some of your parents can get what I'm saying. Some of you young people won't grab this until you're, you have children of your own. But when you have children of your own, and you either watch your kids do things that you don't approve of or say things that you wish they wouldn't say or, or have views that they wish they wouldn't have or work in jobs you wish, whatever. And then you tell them about it or ask them about it and they get real snappy with you or they give you a real good comeback right there. The, it's the, I'm, I'm convinced it's the jealousy in me of what I've given to them to this point and what they're rejecting and um, it's, not, it's not because my kids are particularly sinful. They are, because we all are. But it's just, it's just the nature of people. Um, this one lady uh, who I really loved, I actually did her funeral. She's a, a, a really good old girl. She got saved later in life. The one I baptized in the bathtub, and, and she had a double lung transplant. She died a couple years later. But uh, ba- baptized her at the hospital. But once she got saved, she had a different view. But her grandmother was always on her, Rita, why are you running with these people? Rita, why are you going these places? Why are you, whatever. And she goes, you know the problem with you, Rita, is you listen to people that you shouldn't listen to, and you don't listen to the people you should listen to. And that's the nature of us. Jed, Jed had a pretty good line. He said, uh, if I can remember it. Uh, he said, uh, where's the best place to be? Where's the best place to be? I, I'm about to use that on the kids. Where's the best place to be? Well, I don't really want to go to church, Yeah. I'd really rather do this, yeah, but where's the best place to be? At 10 o'clock at night, 10.30 at night, 11 o'clock at night, where's the best place to be? Is it on the road running with your buddies or is it in the house uh, in the bed? Where's the best place to be on a Sunday morning? Is it at the lake? Is it at the golf course? Is it at the water? Where's the best place to be? Yeah, that's a fun place to be, but where's the best place to be? God is jealous when he sees his children not being in the best place to be not being obedient in the best possible way they could be. God is so long-suffering and merciful. We can see scripture after scripture that. He is very merciful, very long-suffering. But he, I, the jealousy that leads to the frustration, that leads to the anger, that leads to the wrath, that leads to the destruction, I can see it. I couldn't have seen it as a young person because the best place to be was wherever Dale wanted to be. Or whatever Dale wanted to do. That was the best place. It's the best place for me today. And that's where our thinking is wrong. Our, our measure is not where's the best place to be as God commands it. But rather we ask ourselves, where's the best place to be for me because I want it. David in the taking of the ark was like the best place for me to do is go grab the ark, put it on the cart, we'll whip it over. It's always faster on wheels than on foot. We'll just grab it with, we'll go get the new Ox Suburban. We'll load it in the back. We'll haul it over here and everything will be cool. And that was, it was wrong. This demonstration of God's love for his people in numbers and his desire is not just for them to acknowledge his giving of peace in the bounds of right relationship to him, but it's also the promise of his ongoing love for his children and for their children and for their children 
And we're working on Hosea. I wish you'd come Sunday night and listen because Hosea, the book of Hosea, it's all about God's jealousy for his people and how he is just pleads with them. Let's go to John, John chapter 14. Jesus does the same. God pleads with his people to return to him before my jealousy comes to fruition and I have to pour out my wrath on you. Jesus, in talking to the disciples in John 14, he's telling them he's got a special place. It's a lovely place. It's a perfect place. And I want you to be there with me. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. You come with me. Guys, come on. Get on board, and you can come with me to my Father's house. It's got all this abundance. And it's got perfection. And there's no more sorrow and no more tears, no more suffering, no more death. And you come with me. Just come on. Come with me. He says, where are we going, Philip? Lord, show us the Father. It's sufficient. Have I been with you, verse 9, so long, yet you don't know me, Philip? He's, it's, the, it's the frustration, the jealousy of loving these guys and the people, remember the word backsliding? These backsliding heifers, he calls them, a couple places. Backsliding heifer. The back, this is how the backsliding heifer goes. All my cattle people will know this. I guarantee Zach Miller knows about the backsliding heifer. You go to load cattle in a trailer anytime. I don't care if you got 150 pounds of fresh cracked corn in the front with molasses poured on top. As soon as they hit the corner of the trailer, the front legs go like this. And you can't push them, pull them, drag them. You put a rope around their neck. You run it through the, the thing. You tie it to a horse, and the horse is going this way, or a four-wheeler, and the uh, thing's dragging. And then eventually they get in there, and they eat the grain. They're so happy. But first they got to kick you. They got to poop on you. I'm not kidding. It's, I'm telling you. You put a cow on a trailer, you have never seen such that. It's what they do. They freak out. They lock their hands. They mess on everything. And they fight you the whole way. And when you finally get them, they're like, oh, great. And they're happy as can be. And that's the life of the believer. He locks his legs. And he says, why do you kick against the goads? Because I, I want to do what I want to do. Where's the best place for me to be? I want to be there. A bunch of backsliding heifers. We're no different. Jesus is begging him. Philip, don't you know me? You've been with me for three years. You've seen me do all these things. Do you not believe, verse 10, that I am in the Father and the Father in me? It's, it's, it's painful. He says, ask anything in my name. As you approach the Father, ask anything in my name. Philip, come. Be my friend. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. So treat me like a friend. We don't, we don't treat... I, I, you know, I've told a lot of people that. Is this how you treat your friends? You call me your friend. This is how you treat your friends. You must not have very many friends. Treat me like a friend. 15 verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, here's the jealousy. 
He is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them up and throw them into the fire and are burned. If you can't be my friend, if you can't follow me in spirit and in truth, then you're an enemy. And you need to measure that in yourself. Am I a friend of God or am I an enemy of God? He pleads with mankind. He, he actually... Um, uh, he actually goes on there and, and talks about us in the future, those that are yet to be born. Um, I pray not just for these alone, 17 verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through the ministry of the disciples when they finally quit backsliding and locking their legs and, and trashing everything behind. I'm telling you, work cattle. There's a little, there was a little... Uh, a little joke, and, I, and it said it showed a guy, and he's standing at the pearly gates, cowboy guy, you know, he's got a hat on, and he said, um, he goes, you know what, I'd have let you, and you know, Peter's there taking the role, and the guy's standing there, he goes, you know, I'd have let you in, Tom, but uh, except for how you talked whenever you were loading cattle. I'm telling you, you load cattle, and you will see, it's a train wreck. Every time, you can load them a hundred times, and we think it's funny, but we're the same way. We're the same way. We lock our legs and when we get dragged to the fountain of life and we drink deeply, we're like, oh man, that was good. But you fought him the whole way. Why don't you just, just come willingly? Come willingly. He pleads for the disciples to remain faithful until the end. He asks for obedience to God and love for their neighbor in exchange for his life. I'll, I'll, I'll go and I'll take 100% of the suffering and pain and sorrow and death and I'll take it all the wrath of God, I'll take it all. And for on your part, your part of the contract is you accept the price that I'm going to pay and then be obedient to God. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope, though the, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. And I don't know if you know where that's found, but that's found in Lamentations, like the biggest Debbie Downer in the whole Bible, right? It's right in the middle. I'm going to do this. I'm going to stomp your brains in. I'm going to take everything from you. I'm going to take your home from you. I'm going to take your priesthood from you. I'm going to take everything from you. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. For his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And then it goes back to, then I'm going to take your cattle from you, and I'm going to take your home from you, and I'm going to put you in slavery, and I'm going to put you in Babylon. It's going to be terrible. But just remember, God is a merciful God. And he's waiting for the backsliding heifers to just load in the darn trailer. Just get in the trailer. The trailer's is following Christ. Just get in the trailer and do what he tells you to do. Ultimately, in the book of Revelation, we see that the, the Lord will no longer pursue or wait for that last human being, whoever it is, to be saved. There will be no more waiting. There will be no more uh, repenting. There will be no more reconciliation. Whoever is to be saved will be saved. You say, well, it's been 2,000 years. You hadn't come yet. Okay. You know, there's people win the lottery too. I don't know if I want to bet my life on that. Today, well, it's still called today. Today is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may still be found. Today. We read that in Psalms this morning. And, and we should go there and just peck around in there just for a second because that Psalm, both Psalm Two and Psalm 9, if you really focused on them, you would see that they're about the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he tells us that before those days come, 
you can make peace with a jealous God. Start at verse 10 in, in Psalm 2. It says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Proverbs 27, 4 says, Wrath is cruel and love and anger a torrent, but who can stand before jealousy? God has every right to be just and righteous uh, and jealous. He created us. And we shouldn't treat him casually or lightly because of his power and because of his authority and because of who he is. He made us. And knowing that he has this right to be jealous over us, we should be really piously humble before him, um, our loving creator. He created us for a purpose and a, and a, and a work. His name is El Roy, the God who sees me. He not just sees you, he knows you. Of ever how many billion people on the earth, he knows you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He chose you, it says, Ephesians 1, from before the foundation of the earth. He knows who you are. He has a plan. The, the, the old, uh, old Bill Bright thing, he, God has a wonderful plan for you or whatever. God has a plan for you or how's it go? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he loves you. And you may not think the plan's too wonderful. Let me tell you, there's a lot of Christians that have suffered terribly in persecution and death and, and suffering and, and illness. But the key is that God loves you and he chose you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in that, there's an obedience thing required of us. He's a jealous God. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. Who can stand before jealousy? No one. The jealousy of God is much greater than any jealousy of man. And we can't stand before it. But we can stand before his mercy and his grace. We can kiss the son lest he be angry. Let me see if I can find this real quick in 9. The Lord also will be a refuge. Psalm 9, verse 9, 10. The Lord will also be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Even in Hosea, those wicked horrible, backsliding, rebellious um, prostitutes, even those God said, I will have no mercy on, and they're not my people. Even those, he changes their name to mercy and my people. Even those, and he'll do it even for you. Um, so I think it's good for us to consider the fact that God is a jealous God. It's in his jealousy, it's in the Father's a father in his home, thinking about stories I've heard about Daryl up here, my friend, and uh, stories of him as a father in their home and stuff, and it kind of makes me laugh because um, a lot of things that we know about people, we know them as we see them, say, in church or we see them at work, but we don't know their whole existence, you know. And uh, um, But I know, and I know of Daryl, and I know of myself, I'm very jealous for my kids. And if I... I called a school teacher one time over something that was said to Daniel, and, and uh, Daniel didn't like it too much, but I gave that guy a piece of my mind, and I would have gone down there and beat the guy's head on, my, on the floor if, if he had kept up with his jazz, but I just was so mad that he would tell my son this thing that was not true, and that it would lead my son astray. 
and into false thinking about whatever, homosexuality, transgender, whatever, freedoms of Americans, whatever. It made me so mad that I was like, I was ready to go down there and beat this guy. And I was like, calm down, big fella, calm down. But that's the jealousy for my son and seeing him grow and to be a man of God. I don't want anything to get my son off track, off track. And God's the same way with us. He doesn't want anything to get us off track. And when we get off track, let me tell you, he disciplines those who he loves, like a father's son in whom he loves. If he loves you and he beats you, take it like a man because you know that he loves you. If he didn't love you, he'd let you just fall off the cliff. So knowing this about God, that he's a jealous God, turn that back to him in love and honor and respect for his authority and go and do good. Go and do right. If you know to do good and do not do it, it's sin. If you know to do something and it's called by God, go and do it and don't wait. Know he's a jealous God and there'll be a day where there'll be um, no relenting, it says. This morning as we pray together, we're going to have a business meeting immediately after, so I do want to pray with you. And I, I ask that you go back and study these verses, see if I'm telling you the truth. If you want to look also about God's jealousy towards his people, you could look Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 13. Those are both very similar to those Psalms, uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 9, very similar in, in how God is just, he just gets to a point where he's fed up. And I understand um, uh, you love those that you love. You want to see them do well. And when they, when they fumble a little bit, it gets your, it gets your jealousy up. There's, there's anger with jealousy, but the anger is out of love. And we need to see that in the Father. His anger, his wrath, it comes from love. And you, it's hard for us to measure that, but it's, uh, it's no less true. Father, this morning as we come before you, Lord, as humbly as we know how, we, we ask for your mercy now. You have withheld your wrath. What we're just due as a people, as a nation... And we're, we're grateful for that, Lord. We're grateful for the offering of goodness that you've given us over and over and over. Lord, bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Lord, you've given us peace for a long time. You've given us peace in our maybe our fellowship or our homes or even in our country or in Tennessee. We haven't had to, we haven't had to fight off, you know, uh, another evil nation, you know, just every person. But Lord, we're due your discipline because we have turned our backs on you as a people and as a nation. And in that, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. I pray as Daniel, as Job did, as, as Isaiah did, as Jeremiah did for his people, not just for ourselves, not just for my own personal sin. I know as a nation we've sinned against you, we've turned our back on you, and we've gone after Baals. We've gone after our cell phones, we've gone after alcohol, we've gone after materialism, we've gone after fleshly desires of every measure, Lord, and we've We've grabbed those things and said they are higher than God and more important to me than God. And Lord, I ask for your mercy in that. And we repent before you, Lord, now and ask for your mercy and grace towards us as we, as we lift those things up to you, Lord. Our adulterous eyes, our hearts that are, are led to wickedness, Lord, our gossiping tongues, our rebellious spirit, Lord. Father, have mercy. Father, I pray that you reveal yourself to us, Lord. I pray that your lampstand never be removed from, from this place. I pray that the holy anointing oil of the Holy Spirit is poured out on these people and that we, we hear from you. Lord, that we're repentant in our spirit, not just, 
reluctant to change, but re repentant, Lord, that we'd no longer be backsliding heifers, but, we'd, but we would seek to follow you with everything that we are, Lord, and that you would reveal to us the importance of kissing the Son now before waiting until eternity. Have mercy on us, Lord, a bunch of sinners, saved by grace. Your goodness is, mercies are new every morning, and great is thy faithfulness. We thank you for that, Lord. As we go about this week, Lord, I pray that you bring to mind the words of the message. I pray that the words that were spoken was the word that you had for us today, um, that we can use it for your glory to reach others in our community, Lord, that, that locally we can reach people with the gospel, and they'll pass it on and pass it on, and, and we'll have both local and universal impact by preaching the word of God in spirit and in truth, Lord. Thank you for your care for us now. In Jesus' name, amen. I got a little... Uh, we we have.